As I said this morning, tonight I have available to you the prayer list that you gave me in terms of, uh, and this really isn't focused so much on the individuals you put on your list. They're listed here, uh, people that you would like to share the gospel with, but the title of this is Pray For Me, and so the underlying names are the ones we're really praying for, right? Because we looked at the scripture, the scripture doesn't really ever tell us to pray for unbelievers. It says pray for Christians to share Christ with unbelievers. That it is we that need to have the boldness and have the opportunities to share Christ with those that we encounter, whether they be people we know or people we don't know. Uh, on each one of these, we could have put any stranger I meet this week, <laughs> right? We want to have that boldness of having opportunities to share Christ. So I have these available. You'll see on the back that I have some blanks. And that's because not everyone might have gotten their information to me. And uh, that doesn't mean they don't have individuals. And it doesn't mean that you can't add people in there. Um, and uh, that aren't, especially the people that aren't participating in Sunday night, uh, that uh, don't have that access or did, didn't even know, Brenda told me she didn't even know until because she'd been gone a few weeks. And so um, they are listed in a very unusual order. They're listed individually, not by families. Uh, they are listed in an order of alphabetically by your first name. A little bit different. That way it breaks up the family. If you want to pray through the list or if you want to use this to pray for on a regular basis, um, please do so. You can also add, there's room to add other requests. And um, again, as I said, on the back to add additional individuals that I'm, I'm sure are sharing Christ with us. So when you hear someone say, uh, can you pray for someone for salvation? Um, what you're really inviting is we're going to pray for someone to share Christ with them, right? We, and if that's me, I want to have boldness and the verse is that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. That's the passage, the quotation out of 1 Thessalonians. No, it's Ephesians, sorry. It's Ephesians 6. And so um, that's quoted up there at the top. And so these are available. I'm not going to hand them out right now. I'll put them on the back table here but they are ready to go. And I invite you to use those to encourage you in prayer for one another. Um, I had asked people to tell me whether they are a coworker, a friend, or a family. Not all of you did that. When you did do that, I wrote it down on here for coworkers, for families, for neighbors, uh, however you, friends, however you designated them to be known. Um, and again, uh, to help guide our praying that we need to recognize that we have unsaved family members, we have unsaved neighbors, we have unsaved coworkers, we have un these environments that we are put in, uh, that in our unsaved friends that we have that we need uh, that we have responsibility to be communicating Christ in those contexts, in those relationships. So I really am more focused in on the underlying name and the categories: coworkers, friends, relatives. And uh, so I've designated them when you have given me that information. Not everyone did that, um, but uh, where you did do that, um, I have included that in here. Uh, sometimes they're just first names, and sometimes they're full names. Uh, again, our focus is that we're praying for the individual who sees these as relationships that they have where there needs to be the gospel. 
penetrating that relationship, penetrating the conversations that are there. And so uh, they're asking for you to pray for them. And so they're on that list and it'll be made available to you. So that's ready. Now, quick review. I always like to review to make sure we're up to speed. All right, we have the Holy Spirit. And the Bible tells us that he will convict. And the purpose of that conviction is to bring godly sorrow. And that godly sorrow's purpose is to bring repentance. Okay? And so that's his work, not our work. And we want to pray for him to do that. Um, But he doesn't do that in a vacuum, does he? He works within the context of us communicating the gospel. So we're not going to tread into his territory, but we, are, we do understand that he is doing that in a complementary way toward our witnessing. And the word that we are using for our witnessing is what? Okay, so believers are commanded to communicate the gospel. We're going to use the word confront them in terms of sin. Now this is, oh, this is not the full salvation picture, of course, because we haven't gotten to the good news of Jesus Christ. We're just confronting them with their sin. So we are confronting them. We are seeking to bring them to um, a, uh, what was the word I used? I want to make sure I use the right word. To an acknowledgement of their sin. We want to bring them to an acknowledgement. I am a sinner. I have this need. We want them to acknowledge that Whether they feel it or not is not really your job. We're trying to communicate them their need of a Savior, their acknowledgement that they are sinners. And again, with the hope that they will what? They will seek the Lord. Seek Him. All right? Because once they acknowledge their need, now they recognize a need for a Savior, and we want them to seek Him. And we're not going to produce this godly sorrow repentance. We're going to allow the Holy Spirit to do that. But if they seek him, what does Christ say? You'll find me. Seek and you shall find. Ask and it will be given to you. Knock and you'll receive. And so we want him to be to seek him. And they won't seek him a solution to their sin problem if they don't acknowledge their sin problem. So we want them to admit that they have this need. Now, what we're trying to avoid, because it's, again, not our job, it's somebody else's, um, is we're trying to avoid condemnation. And that is something done by who? God. God the judge, right? The judge of all the earth. It is his responsibility. And so we don't want to confuse ourselves with him. And while I can condemn sin, we're talking about condemning the sinner. And that's why when you come to those passages in God's word where Jesus is saying, I have come to do what? Have I come to condemn? No, he says, I haven't come to condemn. I have come to save. Okay? And so God is the judge and condemnation and and the results of condemnation. I'm sorry. result of judging and condemnation um, is still a matter of, of this guilt, right? Acknowledging this guiltiness. 
Um, but it's going to lead to what? What is the conclusion of this condemnation? Is punishment. Even if the every knee will bow and every tongue confess, they still end up in a situation of punishment. When we take over the Holy Spirit's job, we will do a lousy job at that. Okay? And by the way, the necessity for the judge is that he be superior to the ones he's judging. He has to judge from a position of, of absolute holiness or righteousness. And, um, to, and, and so that's why it comes upon God. When we start going into the realm of judging people, we are saying that we are the superior ones that can evaluate them, and that's really not my responsibility. In the context of talk about judge not lest you be judged, uh, really focus on that aspect, or the same measure that you judge, will, you'll be measured against, that you'll be judged. And so we are called to, to make some assessments, and certainly we're doing that as we confront people with their sin. We're saying it's evident that you don't, either don't acknowledge you're a sinner, you're not uh, dealing with that, or you're, not, um, or, or you're just committing a lot of sin. I'm not judging that, I'm simply pointing it out. And, and this is a condemnation now, did Jesus ever speak words of condemnation while he's on earth? Woe to you. When you see the words woe to something in the Bible, those are the most powerful words that they use of condemnation. When they use it about themselves, woe is me, I am undone, that of Isaiah and Isaiah 6, that's godly sorrow. I deserve woe, but here I am in the presence of God's holiness. Uh, so when you see Jesus saying woe to, who does he say woe to? Religious leaders, who else? He says woe to entire cities. If what had been done in you was done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have come to repentance long ago. Woe to you. And he lists off some of those Galilean cities. They're just north of the Sea of Galilee in that vicinity. And he says, you know, you should have come to repentance a long time ago now that you've had the Messiah visit you and the power of of the Spirit come upon you through his, remember his disciples went out two by two as well, and, and to all the villages, all the communities, he says, woe to you. So there is some statement of you're under, you're under judgment, and that is coming, and there was a comment because they refused to repent. And we can, do we need to communicate that there is a judge of all the earth? Yes, all right, and so we're acknowledging, we are, talking about it, we we're not doing what he does. I am not condemning, but I do want to warn you, there is a judge. And this is what we're going to focus in on tonight a little bit, is the, is the righteous judgments of God that is not saying, I am superior to you, but is um, rather the antithesis of pointing out their sin. All right, so this is going to be about shades. We're going to talk about shades of gray, uh, because most people... Uh, don't want to acknowledge that sin is black and white, even in the Christian community. I don't know how, but we have, we have, we have gone into that rabbit hole with the world in saying there is not a, a definitive right and wrong. Our churches used to have church covenants that they would read regularly that says we will not participate in this, 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 this. We will participate in this, 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 this. And they would covenant together, and those were statements of righteousness uh, and we have really lost bearing on that entirely. 
Uh, I remember it growing up, reading those regularly in church, and, uh, and my family sought to live those out. I think they need to be updated regularly because of the nature of worldliness is progressive. It moves. It's dynamic. It's not stationary. It's static. And so, um, but I remember reading those that we would not use playing cards, that we would not go to movies, we would not have any alcohol, we would not, I mean, we, it was boom, 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 very specific and stated forthrightly. And they were, they were issues of church discipline if you violated, because you covenanted that you would not do that. You covenanted with your fellow believers that we're going to take this stand in our society against these actions. So why weren't we going to use playing cards? Because of their attachment to gambling, um, overwhelmingly. And so we were really making a statement we're not going to participate in gambling. And so if I were going to make that today, I wouldn't necessarily, there's lots of playing cards in my house, by the way. If that offends you, I'm sorry. We don't gamble at all, though. No gambling in my house. We would, if I were to do this modernly, I'd say you're not going to go uh, engage in the activity of the casinos. Okay, that would be a comparable one. In their mind, playing cards equal gambling. That's the only thing they were used for. Now they're used for a wide variety of other things that waste your time. Um, and, and we could just go through that. So we had covenants. Um, and so we have lost track of this. And so now we have all these shades of gray. So you got this review down. I wrote it down for you. Speak it, write it, read it to reinforce it. Okay? All right. So now let's go on. Shades of gray. So when you confront people with sin, the first one of the early challenges I think most of us are going to engage in is, well, I don't think that's wrong. Correct? And we talked about that early on. Your interpretation or um, it's right, it's, just because it's wrong for you doesn't mean it's wrong for me. Okay? So from the Christian community, you'll hear that it's your interpretation of the Bible. And I'm like, well, I, I think it pretty much says that flat out, and I teach that with that authority. The Bible has that kind of authority and that clarity, and we just simply ignore it. We choose to ignore it. We explain it away. Um, and I can pick on some tonight that you guys are disobeying right now. Um, the gals, most of the gals are. Um, some of the guys are. that You just don't do it. And, but the Bible very clearly declares it. And so... We, we can talk about interpretation. So I've encountered that all my ministry life um, in every church setting, even among pastoral fellowships. All right? Um, but when you're dealing with evangelism, <laughs> are they going to say it's interpretation typically? A lot of them are uneducated of the scriptures at all. Sometimes you'll encounter that if they have a religious background. But in terms of evangelism, they're just going to have a completely subjective uh, standard. They have no standard, really. We talked about that. And remember that the category we are under is confronting sin in a morally relativistic world. So they have relativism. Whatever is morally right for me, I can't impose on you. There is no absolute standard. And my standard can change based upon circumstances, right? Right? So, well, it was wrong yesterday, but it's okay today. <laughs> it's wrong for that family, but it's not wrong for my family. 
Okay? And so we're going to encounter that. So we're going to talk really about um, real, recognizing there are several ways to approach it. We've already looked at two, right? What was the first way we talked about approaching this question of what is sin? Do you remember? Many weeks ago. All right, let's use their moral standard as weak as it is. Let's at least use that focusing on victimization. How do you feel victimized? You don't like being lied to. You don't like to be, you know, beat up. You don't like to be gossiped about. You don't. So these are moral statements. These are statements of uh, you don't like to be robbed. Well, then, you know, now we can say, well, is stealing wrong for everyone? Okay. And so we're using their moral code as weak as it might be. The second tool that we used was what? Remember? We used the law. Okay? The Ten Commandments are there to teach us about sin. And so now we have used the law to introduce the idea of God. Remember? And to use the idea of Jesus Christ. And, and of, so we're, we're, we're using the Ten Commandments. This is... a. This isn't the standard for heaven, but this is at least one thing we can instruct you from a, from a biblical, we're introducing the Bible, we're introducing God, and we're introducing the idea of heaven, of access to heaven. Do you think you should get access to heaven based upon this? Now, that is coming from a negative. The law is a negative factor. Would you agree with that? That's kind of a, that's what Romans is all about. You know, is the law bad? God forbid. Um, but it's coming to the sin question from a negative perspective. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that you are demonstrating that you're guilty. You're demonstrating that no one can keep these standards, just 10 standards. And we won't even worry about the second, the keeping the Sabbath. Let's just talk about, you know, um, you don't serve anyone but the Lord your God. Well, we do. We have lots of all these idols. Um, not taking his name in vain. Well, we do. Um, and then the social sins, and we can get into those um, as well. And so we recognize a guiltness, but we're coming from, well, you have broken the law. Okay? And so we looked at that, and we studied that. And so that's, from, that, that's trying to set a higher standard than their personal standards, because most people are lying without batting an eye in these days. And they'll cheat, they'll lie, they'll... Do that, and in some communities, some religious backgrounds will encourage it. In Islam, you are encouraged. In fact, it is not a sin to lie to infidels. Okay, it is not a sin under Islam for a Muslim person to lie to someone who's not a Muslim person. In fact, it is encouraged, which is why you can't, you can't. If you're, if you're not a Muslim person, you can't hold a Muslim to his word, ever, um, really. Uh, but, and so you have that to deal with. But we're using the law so from a negative perspective. We're going to look at the, so, so we're trying to, we're moving really from a very gray, gray area of people, people's personal. So we're going to go from uh, the grayest at the top to the, to the most striking black and white at the bottom, and so, is their personal standard is the first one. Their personal morals, and all people have them, and the way you find them is through victimization, through asking them how they like to be the victim 
of other people doing it and if it's okay for them to do it then. And so that's, this is a very gray, all right? This is very wishy-washy. Uh, but it's a good place to start, right? Because usually they're going to be more than happy to talk about their victimization of other people's sin. And then to realize, well, is it wrong then to do that? And you're going to turn it on them and say, well, then is it wrong for you to do that? And sometimes they'll deny that. They'll say, well, I, I can do it under some circumstances. So this is very gray. This is very weak. And I agree with that. The law becomes more clear, right? We come to the Ten Commandments, and we have a much more structured idea of right and wrong. And we have, uh, uh, and we have ten points very clearly. They're delineated by God as an origin, and, and yet it's from a negative perspective. Um, we're not done. Uh, a lot of times this might be enough, though, to, for them, for the Holy Spirit to use it to produce the godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Right? And that's why in Romans, Paul says this law is our schoolmaster to teach us something. It's to teach us that we are sinners and we need a Savior and that we cannot ever measure up to God's standard. So, um, is there a third layer? We introduced that last time. That third layer is um, God himself. God is holy, holy, holy. This is what Isaiah heard, and this is what um, John heard, this declaration in heaven. Now, you might say, I can't take people there because they're not going to acknowledge that God exists. And we, don't, we need to, if we're at this point, we've already worked through some things with them, and we've already introduced the idea of God, but now we're going to pursue that, and I assume at this point, you, this is probably two, three conversations later, or maybe very deep into a long conversation you're having with someone, now we're going to talk about the holiness of God. And this is where that concept of judgment comes into play most heavily, is to recognize that the Ten Commandments is not a standard of holiness. God is the standard of holiness. The Ten Commandments is a teacher of sin, to teach you that you can't even keep these minimal requirements for social justice. For a society that doesn't, isn't violent to each other and isn't a complete affront to God. So we come in. Now, when you're using God as a judge, we can make the correlation, and this I think is very important, and the Bible does this in talking about, shall not the judge of all the earth do what? Right. Oh, do you see that word? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? That is the biblical principle that I want people to acknowledge. I'm not judging you. I'm inviting you to examine yourself. And we're going through some standards of judgment. But there is a judge. And shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And so now we can immediately correlate to the concept of what is righteous judgment? 
What is it to judge rightly? And that takes us immediately into a courtroom. And in Romans, you have Paul using this extensively, this courtroom setting, and, and uh, uh, to argue this case of sin. And so when you he- see the word justification in, by, in, in Scripture, right? Romans talks about justification, Romans 8, uh, plenty of other pl- places. Are, are we justified? That is a judicial term, and it is this declaration of guilt and innocence. You're declared innocent, though you're guilty, and, and, but somebody has to pay the penalty for that guilt. And so um, now we can start talking about what makes a good judge, because the judge should do right. Okay, God is the judge of all the earth, so let's bring this down to something that we can handle um, at a human level. Because they're not going to be able to conceive of God as holy, holy, holy. Even Isaiah the prophet, um, when confronted with the holiness of God, just says, I have no business being here. I'm a man of unclean lips, among a people of unclean lips. Having heard the praising of God in heaven, just that sound, he says, I couldn't possibly make that come out of my mouth because of the uncleanliness of my person. And hence the need, and and God didn't disagree with him, by the way. Did you notice that? God says, yes, send a seraph over there and let him purify your lips with fire. But God is the judge. So what makes a good judge? Now, when you go into a courtroom and you're the defendant, what are you looking for? What is that? If you're the defendant, if you're being accused of something, and you, let, let's just say you're guilty, all right? You're, the, you're guilty, you're going into the courtroom, what are you looking for? You're looking for mercy, because you're guilty. We've already established their guiltiness on their own personal morals. We've already established that they're guilty by the law, God's law. And so now you're coming into a courtroom, you want mercy. What does the victim want? Revenge. <laughs> well, they're in the courtroom, so hopefully they haven't gone after revenge. What do they really want, though? Yeah, you want, your definition of justice doesn't include mercy. It includes vengeance, hence revenge. But vengeance, you want you want punitive action. You want, and a fair judge is a judge that's going to throw the book at this guy, give him the maximum sentence for the crime he's committed against you. So if you are the the accuser, you're in that condition. So now we have the judge of all the earth. And is, by definition, what makes a judge good? And that's a question I ask a lot of people. What do you think makes a good judge? Well, he's going to be fair. Okay, so what's fair for a guilty person? Punishment. Right, according to the law, what is fair, if you've committed the act and you've already admitted to committing all these acts, is punishment. So do not condemn, most people don't want to believe in God 
and they don't want to believe that God is, any, is holy. They only believe that he's love. How can a loving God do this to me? They don't want to acknowledge that God is holy because it puts them in a bind, doesn't it? They're guilty, he's holy, and what is fair and right is punishment. And they don't want to admit that. And so we take it out of there, we're going to bring it back to that, but the idea that God is holy, 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 and that he is the judge is, is a critical thing because now I can introduce, well, this is the judge of all the earth. What does it mean to be holy, holy, holy? What's another good word we could use? People aren't really, the only time I hear unbelievers using the word holy is holier than thou um, kind of context. Um, what word would I use with unbelievers? Righteous? Perfect. I love using the word perfect. God is perfect. Are you? Heaven is perfect. Are you? Now we have a new standard. This is the standard of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Is God is light and in him is no darkness at all. First John 1, right? No darkness at all. There cannot be any of that in heaven. God is light. He is perfect. He is holy, holy, holy. That is the standard for heaven. Do you meet the standard? And what is John 3.20, or I'm sorry, Romans 3.23 tell us. And fall short of the glory of God. Well, replace the word glory with the perfection of God. Can we do that? They're pretty equivalent. And so in our judicial sense, you can't match God's holiness. You fall short. You have to be perfect. Here in the law, you just have to be a good person. And if you violate it, you pay the little price for that. Sometimes it might be serious, but, um, but here we're saying, really, the standard for heaven is you have to be perfect. That's an absolute standard. That is the absolute standard of heaven, is you have to be perfect. All of sin and fall short of God's glory. You fall short of God. And he is your judge. And shall not the judge all the earth do right? And so he's going to do what's right. And so if, so I play, I, everyone that wants to say, well, how can a loving God send people to hell? Well, this is where you answer this question. This is how you address this. You just say, well, if a, if a physician who has saved thousands of lives by the practice of his trade murders his wife and children in cold-blooded murder. And he comes before the judge. How should he be judged? For his crime that he was guilty of, caught red-handed on security cameras doing it. Well, what sh should the book be thrown to him? Yes, he's guilty. Because a righteous judge is not going to let him off, nor is a judge going to say, well, you've done so much good uh, that you've saved so many lives to take four or five lives. Uh, we can understand that. Right? 
Well, that's an affront to us because it said that's not just. And that's what I want to communicate to you. God is holy. He would destroy who he is by letting you in his presence in your condition that you've admitted to already that you break your own moral standard, you break the, the Ten Commandments, the law standard, and you certainly don't measure up to being perfect. And how can you condemn God for being a righteous judge? They just don't want to think about him being a righteous judge. I want them to think about him being a righteous judge. And so I bring forth that example of God's righteousness. Now, what have I just gone through? I've just worked my way through what the Holy Spirit's going to do. Again, I'm not convicting them of this. I'm informing them of this. Because one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to convict them not only of their sin, but of what else? They're, when the Spirit comes, he'll convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of the judgment to come. So I want to inform them of all three of those levels. Even before I introduce Christ, I want to inform them of their sin, God's righteousness, and his sure judgment that's coming. And God as judge is critical to this argument because that's the one who is going to, you're going to have to measure up to his standard and you can't come and say, well, I don't think that's right or I don't think that's wrong. It's irrelevant. He's the judge, not you. And, and I'm not the prosecuting attorney. I'm not the defense attorney. Um, I'm just here telling you that there's a judgment coming and this is the judge. He's holy, holy, holy. And you don't measure up. All of this is trying to getting them to acknowledge, well, yeah. And it's amazing how many, even before you get fully here, have already acknowledged by this step of the law that they really shouldn't be allowed into heaven. And I'm going to take it one step even further. And this is critically important that God is holy, holy, holy. He is perfection. He is the judge of all the earth, and he will do it right. And people know what good judges do. They don't always understand what justice is, because justice is severity and mercy perfectly balanced with wisdom and discretion of when to apply severity and when to apply mercy. Okay? Um, and human judges are really not up to that task very well, but this is God who will always perfectly judge the earth. He will always do what is right. And so now we have a concept of wrong that has, has moved. So now it's not just wrong because it hurts you. Yeah, it's personal morals. The law makes wrong. Um, what is the breaking of the law? An offense, okay? Now it's an offense. Is that an S or a C? An offense. So now because you've broken the law, you are an offense. This is right and wrong. But you get down to here and now... We are understanding that is that your that sin, this is wrong, is what is sin is even imperfection is disqualifying you from heaven. This is why, and this is going to come out very strongly when we get to the sacrifice of Christ. Why did Christ have to be sinless? Because he had to be perfect. 
Why did he have to be born of a virgin? Because he had to be perfect. Okay, and that's critical to his provision of salvation for us. Um, and, and so we're moving it. We're moving from this very wishy-washy gray to a very striking, uh, and, and they'll say, because people will tell you, well, no one's perfect. I love it when they make that statement. They have just, I'm like, oh, you're in the trap. You know, it's like those little spring traps that the, you see the animal go in there, and as soon as they touch that stick, and they're hanging from the tree by the branch by a rope, and you always watched it. And have you ever seen, just on the movies? Okay. Um, I trap animals sometimes. And uh, the CF trap work, when they say nobody's perfect, I say except one. And that's critical. But when you make that statement, nobody is perfect, you've just condemned yourself as guilty. On this standard that God is holy, holy, holy. Now, am I going to throw that at them right away? No, I'm going to wait. I'm going to, when they make that statement, I just pocket that statement. Nobody's perfect. They usually make it way up here somewhere where we first start talking about what's right and wrong and sin. And they'll say, well, no one's perfect and about the requirements of it. And they certainly will bring it up under the law. And I just take that statement, I pocket it, I remember it. It's going to come out later. Because we're going to get to God as holy, holy, holy. And he's the judge of all the earth. Will he not do right? And what is a good judge? What is a right judgeship? Is to penalize the guilty and to defend the innocent. The victim. And so then I pull out that. Remember when you said nobody's perfect? Now I pull that out. And so that imperfection disqualifies you from heaven because God is holy. God is perfect. Heaven is a perfect place. And, and what I want them to say, well then, none of us can get there. And that's exactly what you want the conclusion to be. You've done your job. If they make that declaration, then none of us can go to heaven. When Jesus gets the disciples to say, who then can be saved? That was a great success that day for his teaching ministry, wasn't it, in their lives? Who then can be saved? If, the, if these religious rich people can't be saved, what hope do we have? Now we can start talking like Jesus thought, well, with Man, it is impossible. It is impossible for people to be saved. It is impossible for people to get to heaven because we're all imperfect. We are all transgressors of the law. We have all offended, committed offenses of the law. We are all even done wrong by our own moral standards. We are all guilty, guilty, guilty. And it's impossible for us to get to heaven. This is what we want people to acknowledge don't fight that statement. Embrace that. Bring them to that knowledge because that means, yeah, we're in deep, deep, deep doo-doo, aren't we? And so who does impossible things? Christ tells us, to, doesn't he, in his word. With men, that's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So the judge of all the earth is the one who we have to turn to when we're in this predicament of being guilty, 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 and he's holy, holy, holy. We have to turn to him, and we're going to seek something that every guilty person seeks from a judge. Mercy. 
And that's where we want to take people. Okay? But if we want to jump to God as love and merciful and good and, and he's provided us, if we go there first and we don't establish that they are guilty, 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 that they are sinners in the hands of an angry God, not angry, a judge, ready, a God ready to condemn them righteously, if we don't have this, they, you can talk about God's love and provision to your blue in the face, but they don't need it because they are sure that they've done more good things than bad things. And that's why the courtroom scene is so critically important. And I use the idea of medical doctors that, you know, of saving people's lives and all this and then killing his family. Um, they made a movie about a doctor that did that. Real life story got away with it. And they made a movie of how it could have been done. Um, he didn't have cameras on him. It happens. So what is just? Well, yes, it's just to penalize the guilty. But this judge will do what is right. And what is right is also to provide mercy. Well, that mercy can't be indiscriminate. And we're going to get to that in the next step of that, that God doesn't deal haphazardly based upon your inclinations because uh, that'll never work. And that's the next step which we're going to work on in two weeks because next week we have our fellowship dinner. Um, and we're going to be talking about revealing truth in a subjective world. That starts in two weeks. But this is how we come to the question of sin, and it has to be established. So many Christians are just bypassing this, and, and not just this generation. That really started in, in large measure with my generation. The 60s and 70s were all about God is love, God is love. We beat the world over the head with God is love, and they believed us that he is only love. We never spoke about God as holy, that he is the judge of all the earth. And so we want the world to be convicted of their sin, of God's righteousness, and of the judgment to come. And if we want the Holy Spirit to convict them of those things as necessary to repentance, I need to inform them of those things, confront them with those truths, that they are sinners, God is righteous, and there's a judgment. That is the beginning statement. That is the establishment to the gospel message. Um, and rightly does, even when you go into Peter's sermon in, in Acts 2 and other places, um, he talks about the history and he goes through in, in Stephen's sermon, you know, this is how you have, you're guilty. And I'll prove it historically. I'll prove it uh, for Peter. Uh, you crucified him. You crucified him with, with cruel hands. Him who did nothing wrong, you crucified. That's murder. You were unjust. You're guilty. God raised him from the dead. You crucified him and that establishment. And it was that that it says they were cut to the heart. And then they said, what must we do to be saved? And we don't communicate this truth enough to allow the Holy Spirit then to use this truth to convict them. I'm not trying to convict them. I just want to inform them and then I'm going to let the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit could be convicting them while we're going through this. You know how you know? Godly sorrow. Tears. One of the pastors 
from northern India that spoke at the conference you sent me to in the Philippines, his whole sermon was about where are the tears. So this isn't just an American phenomenon. This is a guy from northern India. I'm not sure he'd ever been in the United States. I have no idea. Speaking to a bunch of international pastors, I was the only American pastor being preached to, and he's saying there are no tears in any of our conversions anymore. Internationally. Don't think this is just an American thing. Because there's no godly sorrow. And I'm convinced that, that the Holy Spirit is still capable of conviction. Because today is still the day of salvation. Amen? So where has the fault come? I believe the fault has come because we aren't going to take the necessary steps to show people their sin, God's righteousness, and the judgment to come. We have to teach it to people, confront them with it, for the Holy Spirit to convict them of it. We use God's word. We want to get to God's word as quickly as we can, but starting off here, their personal, get to the law, and then get to the righteousness of God, and as communicated throughout the scriptures. So I haven't made, had you look up any of these verses. I have them all here. I've been quoting them instead of having you look them up, uh, because then I'm done at seven o'clock instead of quarter after. Um, hopefully you're familiar with these passages we've been talking about all evening. Put them into practice. Uh, and in your conversations, uh, establish this. Before you start talking about God's mercy and provision and love, um, they need to know they're sinners. Every now and then you'll find someone that's already there. Maybe they've had another conversation. Maybe something else has alerted them to their guilty standing before God. Um, but, and you might have to, it might only take five minutes to cover these bases. And you can already see the tears welling up but you need to make sure that that has been established. But for the most part in this age of, of subjectivism, of moral relativism, you're going to find that these people are hardened, and it is this process of information that is our responsibility, and then um, pray and, and expect the Holy Spirit to convict them. They can still resist the Holy Spirit, but want to give them a chance, then you need to confront them with their sin. And then we can start talking about God's mercy and provision uh, of that perfect sacrifice to take away their sin and to grant them a righteousness that isn't their own that we can't attain to by ourselves. Okay. Hope this has helped in this area. Um, again, this isn't something new. We're actually calling you back to something old. The old-time preachers knew to do this. They, they pointed that big finger and said, you dirty, rotten, rascal sinners. Um, read Jonathan Edwards, because he read it. He read his sermon. He didn't yell and scream it. He didn't pound the pulpit. He read that thing. He says, you're sinners in the hands of an angry God. Read that sermon sometime. Um, and recognize that he read it many, many times, sometimes in the same church, and people went out of this church screaming for fear of hell because they knew they were guilty. No one got saved in any of his churches. They all got saved outside. He never had an altar call. Okay? He just informed them of the truth of this absolute standard that God is holy, 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 and none of you measure up. 
And at any time, he could start exercising his right of judgment to do right and punish you to eternal flame. Anytime. And that is credited, that sermon is credited with the Great Awakening, right? The great revival in this country. Uh, we're in need of that kind of communication of this information today. Uh, it's not going to be easy, it's not going to be well received often, but that is our responsibility to just keep pushing it forward. Um, the other Christian community will say, you don't need this, bypass this. It's just going to offend people. You're going to look like you're judging them and blah, 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 blah. None of that is true biblically. Okay? And so um, don't listen to them because God's word makes it very clear that you cannot bypass this step or short circuit it and, and do an injustice to it and and we need to then allow the Holy Spirit to let that just sink into them and bring godly sorrow. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your word and for its truth as we seek to apply it to this. Lord, we see an abandonment of this, of your truth, not only in the world, but in the Christian community as they abandon this critical part of the gospel. And Lord, we see how the world is trying to be convinced that there is no right and wrong that everyone can do what's right in their own eyes. And we know that that is the prelude to your judgment every time. So we know your judgment is coming quickly. Lord, help us to rescue some and try to rescue all we can by sharing with them this truth. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.